Again, Acts 2, verses 1 through 13. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all of these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocking said, they are filled with new wine. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning and uh, welcome. I didn't know there was going to be uh, an impromptu blizzard this morning, so thanks for coming out. I checked the weather thoroughly this morning, and uh, that was definitely not in the forecast. So uh, thanks for coming in in the snow and wind this morning. We're really glad uh, that you're here. And uh, as we begin uh, looking at this passage this morning, continuing our uh, sermon series on Acts, I'd love to start with prayer and uh, ask for God to continue to speak as he has spoken and continue to speak through his word to us this morning. So let's do that now. Father in heaven, Thank you that you uh, do speak to us, uh, that you are speaking through your word. And I pray now that by the power of your Holy Spirit, who you've given to us, that we would in fresh ways uh, hear your word this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. What does it mean? What does it mean to be spiritual? Uh, What does it mean to be spiritual? Because even in a culture like ours where uh, there is a decline in sort of participation in uh, organized religious activities, uh, research indicates that there is uh, an, an increase by some measures of spirituality in American life. And, and a leading voice in this research is the Pew Research Center's uh, Religion and Public Life Project. And maybe some of you saw some of their research published a couple years ago. Um, but they did a survey of 35,000 U.S. adults, and they tracked this group over time. And, and they found that there's a percentage of people in that group who say that they believe in God, that they pray daily, regularly go to church, those kind of things, that that is, uh, is declining modestly. That group is getting smaller. But then on the other hand, they found a a growing share of people talking about spirituality in their lives, who feel a sense of spiritual peace, uh, a deep sense of wonder, a sense of wonder about the universe. Uh, and, And there are a few places where you experience that trend as powerfully as in uh, Sedona, Arizona. 
Uh, Rachel and I went there uh, on a day trip. We were staying in Scottsdale on our honeymoon. We took a day trip up to Sedona. And it's one of the most stunningly beautiful places I've ever been in my life. But, but what stuck with me from that visit, as much as the physical beauty of the place, was the saturation of people there seeking a spiritual experience. And that's because in Sedona, a big part of why people gather there and it's become this attraction is not just the physical beauty, but, but people say there's these, these things called vortexes there. They, they talk about these kind of swirling centers of, of energy that are conducive to healing or meditation, that they're, they're places where the earth seems particularly alive with energy. Um, and there, there's some bold promises made. If you, were, say, if you come here and participate and find one of these, these vortex areas, um, the, the Sedona Visitors Bureau puts it this way. It says, Sedona really has the ability to transform lives, um, to embrace the spectacular, the astonishing. They said, for many, the, the very act of being here provokes a spiritual awakening. The very act of being there provokes spiritual awakening. And I think this points to a tension that we feel in, uh, in our culture, that on the one hand... Uh, as modern 21st century people, deeply uh, entrenched in sort of an enlightenment view of the world and a scientific perspective, we see the world as being a, a closed system that matter is all that there is. Um, that if we want to know something for, is real for sure, that it has to be something we can taste or see or touch or measure or weigh, that, that science is the only kind of true path to knowledge. So we have that on the one hand. I think most of us, just because of the culture, we feel that. And then yet on the other hand, there's all this pull to want to have some kind of spiritual experience, to experience transcendence, to have some sense of awakening, that we sense that somehow this closed view of the universe over here has somehow impoverished us, impoverished us in some way as people. Okay, so what does it mean to be a spiritual person? And how, how do Christians answer that question? What we find here in Acts chapter 2 is that the Christian understanding of spirituality is deeply, deeply tied to the mission of the local church. And what we find in this passage is that we, as the local church, have been empowered for mission. That you have been empowered for the mission. That the Christian understanding of what it means to be spiritual cannot be separated from our identity as the people that God has called together in order to be sent to the world. So last week we began this new uh, series in the book of Acts in the New Testament. And Acts really is the origin story of the church. This is the, the backstory of the local church. How did we get here? Why are we still here today? That book of Acts provides so many answers to those questions. It's our, our origin story. And it was so clear last week as we looked at Acts chapter 1 that the church has been sent. Has been sent by Jesus to be witnesses of what happened in his life, his death, his resurrection. But before Jesus and his first followers could be sent, Jesus told them to wait. So if you look back in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, this is what we looked at last week, Jesus makes this statement. This is right before he ascends into heaven. 
he says to his disciples, but you will receive power, this is verse 8 of Acts chapter 1, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So when the Holy Spirit comes, Jesus promises, they will be ready for mission, ready to be sent. But when we ended Acts chapter 1 last week, that moment had yet to happen. The Spirit had not yet come. But Acts 2 is here and the wait is over. The Holy Spirit arrives and empowers the church for mission. We've been empowered for the mission. And and the first thing that we see when we look at Acts chapter 2 is that the church has been empowered for mission by a personal presence. By a personal presence. Again, Jesus at this point, he's risen from the dead, he's ascended into heaven, and he's told his followers to return to Jerusalem and wait. And while they're waiting, the day of, of Pentecost arrives. So what's, what's that? I mean, maybe if you've been around the church, you grew up in church, maybe you heard something about Pentecost. But what, like, why is that significant that Luke mentions Pentecost? Well, it's just the day, it's a festival that happened 50 days, let's say Penta 5, 50 days after uh, Passover. And it was, a, it was a celebration to um, give thanks and celebrate the, the first fruits of the harvest coming in. And it was one of three festivals that at this time, if you uh, were a Jew and you were living in other parts of the Roman Empire, that you would come to Jerusalem if you were able to celebrate the, the feast, the festival of Pentecost together. And so there are people from all over the, the known world gathered there for that. It's crowded with hundreds of people from all these different places thousands of people probably. I kind of picture it's like a little bit like, uh, you know, New Orleans during Mardi Gras, except with probably more clothes in this instance. Um, but all these people gathered together. And the next thing that Luke tells us is, is that all the followers of Jesus are gathered together in one place. Now that could just refer to the 12 followers of Jesus, but Luke also in chapter 1 told us there's this larger group of about 120 but I mean, that's all the Christians in the world. There's more Christians here than, were in, than in existed in the entire world in that moment. So there's only 120 of them. This is a brand new beginning thing. There hasn't even, church hasn't even fully begun yet. So there's this maybe 12, maybe 120. They're all gathered together in one place, Luke says. So now the scene is set. It's Pentecost. They're gathered together in one room. And then take a look at verses 1 through 4. So when the day of Pentecost arrived, Luke tells us, They were all together in one place and suddenly, out of nowhere, suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And you see, can you imagine this scene? I mean, at one level, it had to be almost terrifying, right? If you were a person who was in the room in this moment, when this happens, you're sitting there talking about, maybe you're going to go to the Pentecost Day Parade later that day. Where are you going to, what's a good spot? And where are you going to go afterwards to eat? And then all of a sudden, the place starts shaking and there's this sound like a wind that comes rushing into this place. Um, the other day, we were sitting at home and kind of got a little tiny taste of of, of something of what that must have been like. Um, we, were, we were sitting in our living room and several large, I think it was three or four Black Hawk 
military helicopters, these big helicopters flew, not really low over our house, but fairly low over our neighborhood. And the, the whole house shook. If you've ever been near one of the, these helicopters, really powerful. I mean, the whole house is shaking. The windows are rattling and the pictures on the wall are rattling. And our little 22-month-old daughter, Isla, was back in her room playing. She comes flying out to the living room, eyes big as saucers, terror, like, what in the world is happening? The house is shaking. And that's just helicopters flying over but it isn't just the wind and the shaking all of a sudden that, that Luke describes in this moment that it would have been terrifying. All of a sudden there's these things, it's, it's fire, but something like fire. It looks like fire is coming into the room and, and it divides and kind of rests on top of each one of them. And let me just say at this point, some of you are probably here thinking, okay, this is a little interesting, Bill, but this seems a little bit beyond belief. Uh, we're in the realm, a little bit of fairy tale and myth right here. We're not actually saying this actually happened in history, right? But remember, Luke, when he started writing his gospel, when he continues in his second volume, the book of Acts here, he said, I'm, I'm recording eyewitness accounts. I'm talking to people who were there, who saw this, and I'm writing down, verifying as much as I can of what actually happened. He's not writing a myth. And what's interesting about that is that the Bible takes seriously that these things are hard to believe, right? It doesn't just assume, well, everyone instantly saw this and they, they understood what it meant and they, they believed it all. The Bible doesn't back off from noting that these sorts of unique, unrepeatable events are difficult to accept, even for the people who are seeing them with their own eyes. You know, so for example, last week we, we pointed out that Jesus uh, had to prove himself alive to his closest friends and followers. But why? Because, you know, whether you live in the 21st century or the 1st century, you know dead people don't come back to life. Jesus had to prove, says by many proofs, showing himself to be alive. Because even his closest friends and followers were like, Really? And so too here, people uh, see what's happening in verse 13 at the end of the thing that some of them are like, they, they all asking, what does this mean? And some of them are saying, this can't, they, this isn't the spirit. This is the spirits. They're, they're drunk. That's what's going on here. There's deep skepticism about what's happening. And, and I point that out just to say, it's not as though there's a bunch of pre-modern people in the first century who just were gullible and believed anything. Whether when they were actually seeing it with their very own eyes or reading about it later, that somehow, just because we are 21st century modern people, that will surely, you know, we're more advanced and sophisticated than them. And no, this was hard for people at the time to believe what's happening. So we can't just dismiss these accounts out of hand as something that, well, that's just pre modern. The work of God intervening in our world always stretches our sense of what is possible. And that's exactly what's happening here. God himself is intervening showing, intervening, showing up in a powerful way. Because this is God himself. The Holy Spirit is not an, an, an it. It's not a force or a, a power. The Spirit is a person. He's the third person of the Trinity. Deep at the core understanding of the Christian view of, of who God is, who's revealed himself to be in the, the Scriptures is that he's triune. One God, 
eternally existing in three equally divine persons, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. As we go through the book of Acts, we're going to get glimpses again and again of the Holy Spirit's personality, him as a person. But it's important to note here that Christian spirituality is about an experience of being remade by a person. It's not about uh, tapping into a vortex or a life force of all things. A Christian understanding of what spirituality is is being empowered by, filled with the personal presence of God himself. Which gets at the significance of the whole sort of tongues of fire thing coming and dwelling. Note, not just in the room generally, but on each one of them. Because what's happening with that? Because I mean, it's weird, right? It's, this is a bizarre moment in the Bible. What's going on here? Well, this is actually one of the most incredible parts of this passage. Because all of this imagery, the rushing wind, the, the, the fire, all of those point us back to moments in the Old Testament. We talked last week about Acts. It's a, it's a bridging book. It, it builds a bridge between different things in the Bible. So it bridges the two big chunks of the Bible. You have the Old Testament and the New Testament. There's two big chunks of the Bible in that way. It also bridges Jews and Gentiles, as we're going to see. It bridges the early church to our church. And this is a really key bridging passage, linking the Old Testament and the New Testament together. Because the Bible actually begins, some of the first words, is that God's spirit, his breath, the wind, is hovering over the surfaces of the water. That's Genesis 1, very beginning. And you see, whenever in the Old Testament, when God showed up to dwell with his people, which has been his plan from the very beginning, whenever God showed up to dwell with his people, you had this physical phenomenon of wind and fire, clouds, smoke. So in the book of Exodus, when God, after he's delivered his people, rescued them out of Egypt and they're gathered in the desert, God comes down on on Mount Sinai and delivers the Ten Commandments. There's cloud and fire and smoke and lightning. And then later on at the end of the book of Exodus, when they've uh, built this tabernacle, it's a tent, which is going to be the place where God's presence is going to dwell among his people. Again, this has always been part of the plan. When God's presence fills the tent, it's covered in a cloud. And wind. And again, when King Solomon builds a physical temple, moving beyond a a tent to a a permanent structure, a similar moment happens. There are cloud, glory, wind come down on that place. But here, instead of God's presence filling a building or a tent, His personal presence in the Holy Spirit is filling his people. You see, the place where God's presence dwells on earth is no longer in a sacred building or tent in one particular geographical location. No, now it is with and in followers of Jesus. We have been empowered for the mission that Jesus is sending us on by the very presence of God dwelling with us. And that empowerment with the personal presence of God, God's very presence himself in and among his people, it leads to an astonishing inclusivity. Look at what happens next here. So they all start speaking in these these other tongues as 
the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, these are different times. They're not just sort of uh, uninterpretable un speech. They're actually speaking other languages. I mean, can you imagine that if you've ever uh, flown internationally, maybe you flew out of the international terminal in uh, Atlanta, or if you connected through Heathrow, if you've ever been in a big international airport where uh, you're in the international terminal, right? You're in there and you see all, hear all kinds of languages being spoken, right? A, a whole mixture of languages at any one point. Kind of this international airport scene breaks out here in this room of all of these different languages being spoken all at once. Look at verse 5. Now they were there dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound of the multitude, at that sound, the multitude came together. And I think that sound is, you may think, oh, it's the wind. But the context seems like it's actually probably the sound of all the languages being spoken. At this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, are not all these speaking Galileans? How is it that we hear each in his own native language? Again, one, this is one of these moments in the biblical text where God is acting powerfully, intervening for his purposes, and he's given these Galilean followers of Jesus an incredible ability to proclaim what Luke calls the mighty acts of God. Now, why is it significant that they're named as Galileans in this moment? Well, because Galileans were considered uneducated, backwater, kind of hillbilly people. You know, they weren't considered the cultural elite of their day by any stretch. And they certainly weren't thought to be people who had, you know, mastered perfectly all the languages of the world. And, and their accents gave them away. The Galileans had a particular accent. But here we have them speaking clearly, fluently, not as someone who's trying to figure out a language, but like speaking these other languages as native speakers, different languages all over the known world. And this is what's different about this moment than other places in the Bible where it talks about tongues. If you spend some time with the Bible, maybe you've heard or you've been in churches where there's this idea of kind of some people speaking in a tongue that no one else can understand. And Paul addresses that, one of the leaders of the early church, in a letter he wrote to the church at Corinth. And he says, if you're going to do that, you need to have someone who's an interpreter who can explain what that person is saying. But that's, that's not what's happening here. That's a, that's a different thing altogether. Here, people are just they're speaking other known languages and the, the people who know those languages can understand them. No interpreter required. Everyone hears what the disciples are saying clearly in their own native language. Jesus has promised from Acts 1.8 that they would receive power to be witnesses of his death, resurrection, to the ends of the earth. It's already beginning to come true. Okay, but there's something really significant here that we can't miss. And it's, it's actually pretty easy to pass over. Uh, it was something I hadn't fully grasped until I really started digging in and studying Acts, getting ready for this series at the end of last year. Why is it that Luke lists out all of these places where people are from? And Kate did a great job of reading all those names earlier, didn't you? But why does he take the space to do that? 
What's the significance of them hearing the message of the mighty acts of God, not in some common language that people, you know, like a trade language, like Greek or Aramaic, that they all would have kind of known. What's the significance of, of them hearing it in their own native languages, in the places where they were from? Well, Tim Keller, a pastor in New York City, first highlighted this to me as he, he pointed out the work of uh, Yale Divinity School professor Laman Sané. And Laman Sané in his book, Whose Religion is Christianity? He makes a profound observation. And Sané, like I said, he teaches at Yale Divinity School, but he's a, an African Christian, grew up as a Muslim, came to Christ. And, and what Sané points out is that because with Christianity, at the very beginning, you have many cultures and languages all hearing the message at once. This means that no one language or culture has pride of place in Christianity. That no one language or culture can be claimed to be the original or the first. Who were the first to hear the message that day? Was it the Parthenians or the, the Cretans? The Arabians or the Egyptians? Neither, right? They all heard it at the exact same moment in their own language. And you see, this has two radical implications. First, it means that the message of Christianity can be truly translated into any language and culture. It can be truly translated into any language or culture. Now, this is not true of every other religion in the world. So, for example, take Islam and the Quran, the holy book of, of Islam. If you were to go into uh, Barnes & Noble on the plaza this afternoon and, and find a copy of the Quran there in uh, Barnes & Noble, it would, in an English, an English uh, version of that, it wouldn't say a translation. It would say an interpretation of the Quran. Why? Because the Quran is only truly the Quran in Arabic. If you're a Muslim, God, Allah, speaks Arabic. If you really want to know the Quran, you have to know Arabic. You memorize it in Arabic. Islam is deeply rooted in, in the Middle East in a particular geographical location. This is why if you're a faithful Muslim and you're able, you make a pilgrimage to, to Mecca. It's tied to a particular culture and language. That's so with Christianity. From the very beginning. It's heard in multiple languages and given to multiple cultures all across the world right in one instant from the very beginning. The message can be faithfully translated into any culture and languages. There's an astonishing inclusivity right from the beginning and reconciliation as we're going to see throughout the book. That's the first implication. Second implication is this. This also means that there is no one right or superior culture within the Christian faith. That Christianity, the gospel, both critiques and affirms every culture at different points. Again, Laman Sané is so brilliant here. He points out that Christianity, it takes you a little bit out of your culture, but it doesn't destroy your culture. So when you become a Christian you begin to see the, the blind spots, the weaknesses in your own culture. But it doesn't translate you into a different culture. It doesn't, if you're an American and you become a Christian, you don't stop being an American, but you begin to see the weaknesses of American culture. If you're a European and you become a Christian, 
It takes you a little bit out of that culture, but it doesn't destroy your Europeanness. Uh, this is what Laman Sane points out was so, so the gift of, of Christianity in different cultures. As an African, he writes this. He says, Christianity enabled Africans to become renewed Africans, not remade Europeans. And Keller points out then, this actually makes Christianity more inclusive than the secular West for all of its talk of inclusivity. Why? Well, think about it. Imagine you are an African. You grew up in Kenya or Zimbabwe. And you grow up with a, a prevailing worldview in those African countries of a, of a world that's alive with spirits. That the animals, the rocks, the plants, the trees, they all invested with spiritual power and, and you have to sort of appease and, and nurture and that these spirits play a big part in your, your life and your understanding of the world. And then you get a scholarship and you move to maybe to Kansas City to study at UMKC or to KU and you arrive there. In the university context, of course, there's a welcomeness, right, of some of the diversity as long as that means your language, your food, your clothing style. We, yeah, we like your food. We like your, come on. But now you want to study science. And they're going to say, well, of course, the world isn't invested with those spiritual power. I mean, you need to leave that behind. Right? So in order to study it, you have to become secular. You have to leave part of your Africanness behind. That's not the case with Christianity, though, Right? you're an African with this view of the spiritual realm and you become a Christian, right? It takes you a little bit out of your culture because, but it also affirms. Christianity says, yes, there's a, there's a very real spiritual realm that exists, but Jesus has conquered all the evil spiritual forces in the world and you worship him alone. So do you get to understand what Lam and Sani says? It makes you a remade African, not a European it affirms and also critiques and challenges the culture. The gospel does this in every culture. Affirmation and critique. Christianity renews you in the culture you are. It doesn't make you into a different culture. Okay, so this is what we, we've seen so far. We've looked at the, what it means for a Christian to be spiritual. is to be made alive by the Spirit. To be empowered for the mission that Jesus has sent us on. And that that empowerment, that personal presence of the Spirit dwelling in us, that that actually creates an incredible inclusivity unlike nothing else in the world. An inclusivity that transcends and renews and critiques every culture and language without destroying or flattening any culture or language. In fact, when you get to Revelation, the new heavens and the new earth, right, there's every tribe and tongue and nation gathered. And now in verses 12 through 13, we see that we're empowered with a fearless joy. Empowered with a fearless joy. And in those verses, 12 and 13, you get the reaction of people watching this unfold. And everyone, you know, regardless of what their perspective on the event is, they're, they're amazed and perplexed. They're asking, what in the world does this mean? But there's one particular group that sees this unfolding, and, and they conclude, as we mentioned earlier, that this, these people are drunk. That's what's happening in this moment. They're absolutely drunk. 
That's the only expression of this or explanation of this, this kind of behavior, what's happening in this moment. Why, why do they say that? Well, because they, they see these people exhibiting a kind of fearless joy in this moment. Again, Keller pointed this out to me, his work on this text, which I love. He says, you know, what happens? Think about this. What happens when someone's drunk? Maybe you've been there. What, what happens in that moment, right? right? Your inhibitions go down. You're more bold. You're, you're quicker to laugh. You're less fearful. And, and all of that is because alcohol is a, is a depressant, right? It actually, which means it's depressing part of your, your neurological functioning. You're, you're less in touch with reality. And so you're able to forget about your problems, your worries, your social anxiety. All that stuff begins to disappear. Uh, so you come across as fearless, joyful. But eventually, of course, right, the buzz begins to wear off and come back to reality. Now something similar happens with the power of the Spirit, but for the exact opposite reason. Because when you're truly empowered by the Spirit, you also begin to exhibit a fearless joy. But not because you're less in touch with reality, but because you're more in touch with reality. You know the joy of a personal experience with God's presence. You're fearless because the gospel means that we can never lose God's love. That Jesus died to secure it for us. That the only person who could ever accuse or condemn us is the one who died to rescue us. And when you have that, that kind of assurance and security that not even death can separate you from the love of God and that he's redeeming all things, it begins to overflow into a fearless joy. You're able to witness boldly because you know that the ultimate reality of the good news of the gospel and the joy of forgiveness and relationship with the God of the universe is yours. The Spirit puts you in touch with the most real reality. And the result is a fearless joy. And so we're empowered for the mission with the personal presence, with astonishing inclusivity, and a fearless joy. So what are, what are our next steps then? Well, if you're here this morning and you wouldn't consider yourself a Christian, I'd encourage you to reflect this week and just ask yourself, what do I mean by spirituality? What does it mean, what do, when I use that language, what does it mean to be spiritual? And ask yourself, how might the Christian answer to that question bring me in greater contact with reality? What are, the, what are the benefits, the strengths of this kind of understanding of the Christian understanding of spirituality? And if you are a Christian, if you do consider yourself a follower of Jesus, ask God this week to give you a fresh experience of his love. A fresh experience of the good news of the gospel that would fill you with a fearless joy. Maybe there's a passage of scripture that's been meaningful to you in the past or a, a song that you love that reminds you of God's love and care and forgiveness. And the God, Go back to some of those places. Say, God, give me a fresh, a new, a renewed experience of your love, of your grace, of the gospel. That I, I, I want that fearless joy that comes in the midst of that. Help me to go deeper into the gospel and find that. 
And then think of one person in your life. It, you know, it could be a classmate, a neighbor, a coworker, a friend. One person that you could begin to share the mighty works of God with. It's <laughs> the language that, that Luke uses. The mighty works. What do I mean by that? I don't mean you have to find them and take out and try to explain the entire Bible to them. I simply mean look for an opportunity to say, this is what God has done in my life. Find a natural way to let them know that you're a Christian. If they don't know you're a Christian, maybe neighbor doesn't know. You don't have to be weird about it, but just find a natural way to let them know I'm, I'm a Christian, that this part of my life is really meaningful to me. And often the way that that comes out best is not by trying to find a way to talk about yourself, but by asking questions and listening to them. Ask, how's your life going? How are things at work? How are your kids? How is your spouse? I mean, you know, actually things at work are really hard right now. Or man, like, my oldest is really struggling in school. Listen to what's going on. Where, where are they struggling in life? Offer to pray for them. Maybe it'd be weird to actually pray with them in the moment. Maybe it wouldn't, but maybe it would. But just say, hey, you know, I'll be praying for you. And then you just say, you know what, actually, and, and when I've been that, when work's been really hard for me, when my, I was really struggling in my relationship with my spouse, my, my faith community, it was really, it's just been an anchor for me. Maybe they say, tell me more about that, or, yeah, I need, I think I need to get back into that. But it, maybe they won't, but those are ways to just begin. Ask about them. Say, I'd love to pray for you. See, this is how my faith has helped me in, in similar moments of struggle. See, we're called to a public faith, not a privatized faith. And we've been sent by Jesus. And he's given us the power of the Holy Spirit to do the work that he's called us to do. And God's very presence dwells with us. You see, if you are a Christian, he has taken up residence in you. You are, we are together as God's people, the place where his presence dwells on earth. How is that possible? Because when, because when Moses, I feel like you, know, you read stories of Moses, this guy is the guy who knows God. When Moses, the leader of God's people, after they were rescued from Egypt, Moses who talked to God of the burning bush, Moses who's personally chosen by God, when Moses who helps oversee the construction of the tabernacle, the tent where God's presence was going to dwell with his people, when that moment happens, Moses can't even go into God's presence. When the cloud comes down, that's how the book of Exodus ends. Moses is stuck outside of the tent because the glory of God is there. And he cannot go in until this whole system of sacrifices and ritual cleanse, all this stuff is set up. But now God's spirit actually dwells not, we're not just in a building where he's actually living inside of us. The fullness of his holiness and presence, how is that possible? Moses can't even go in. How is it that he's living inside of you and me? See, because Jesus was the ultimate sacrifice. Once and for all, he cleansed us of our sin. He forgave us of our sin. And when he died on the cross, Matthew tells us that in the moment that he died, when the sacrifice was complete, the veil that hung in the temple, that separated even 
God's holiest, most set-aside-apart priests and people who went in once a year from God's presence, that that veil was torn in half from top to bottom because God's presence no longer dwells in one building or one tent in one geographical location. No, it is now dwelling in men and women and children of every tribe and tongue and nation all over the world as they bear witness to the mighty acts of God, the forgiveness of sins, the renewal of all things, with the fearless joy that comes from the Spirit. Let's pray. Father, I, it strains at my mind to even begin to grasp that you, that your presence is dwelling here in this room in us. Would you give us a fresh experience of that reality in our lives? And would it produce within us a fearless joy, a humility and a confidence? Would you give us wisdom and courage to be public in our faith? In Jesus' name, amen.